Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew Hiskins, and I'm the Manager of Learning Services here at State Library Victoria. Um, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all on this uh, rather cold spring evening uh, to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative of State Library Victoria and the Grattan Institute. This seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I'd like to give a warm spring welcome to tonight's speakers, Dr. Sarah Bice, Professor John Thwaites, Sarah McNamara, and Tony Wood. Uh, also to Grattan Institute members and staff and friends of the library. The policy pitch is one of a broad range of programs offered by the State Library and, and by our partners. Uh, if you'd like to know more, um, I'd encourage you to pick up our winter brochure um, and have a look at what's on, on, on that and on our website uh, to keep abreast of the free community programs that we offer. So tonight's topic is about retail competition in the energy sector and it is featured prominently in current affairs. Uh, two recent events uh, in this ongoing debate are the meeting of retailers with the Prime Minister and the release of the bipartisan review of the Victorian electricity and gas markets led by John Thwaites, who's with us tonight, and an independent panel. Sarah, John, Sarah and Tony, I look forward to hearing your observations about this contentious domain, and I can almost feel the energy in the room. I'm pleased to introduce the moderator for, uh, for this evening, Dr. Sarah Bryce. Um, Sarah is Deputy Director of the Melbourne Energy Institute. She's a social scientist and Director of Research Translation for the Melbourne School of Government and President-elect of the International Association for Impact Assessment. Sarah has spent much of her career working with communities, corporations and government to reduce the social impacts of mining and extractive projects and improve policy outcomes. She's an award-winning writer and her book, Responsible Mining, is available now. Please join me in welcoming Sarah. Good evening and welcome. And I would also like to begin by acknowledging that we meet this evening on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to any elders who may be with us this evening. As we introduce part of our Energy Futures Seminar Series through Melbourne Energy Institute in partnership with the Grattan Institute, tonight looking at retail competition in the electricity sector and energy price. I am so pleased to see the lights are on. And it's something we really take for granted, isn't it? The lights are on, the refrigerator hums, the telly turns on. For so long, energy has been, for many of us, a very invisible resource that today is becoming much more visible. And a great deal of this increased visibility is due to the noticeably increasing cost of electricity to the everyday consumer. And certainly why we're here tonight. It's no coincidence that this conversation is taking place at our beautiful State Library, thank you Andrew, in the heart of Victoria. Because nowhere else in Australia today are individuals paying more for their energy. Professor John Thwaites' independent review into the electricity and gas retail markets in Victoria, and you'll hear much more about that from the man himself in a moment, it found that Victorians are paying an average of around 21% more per year 
for their electricity than the cheapest offer available in the energy market. These prices were much higher than those found in official estimates. And meanwhile, another of our speakers, Tony Wood, and his colleagues from the Grattan Institute found that Victorians could save a total estimated, are you ready, $250 million a year if the profit margin of electricity retailers was the same as for other retail businesses. And you'll hear more from Tony in a moment as well. The situation has led to calls for urgent attention to a market that was fully deregulated in 2009. We see headlines like those that recently appeared in The Age noting that the Australian wages are relatively frozen and increasing energy prices are hurting households' hip pockets. The recent release of Chief Scientist Alan Finkel's review into the future security of the national electricity market, to which the Melbourne Energy Institute was privileged to contribute, has sparked ongoing debate over a clean energy target, and it's re-emphasized the pressing need to transition to a low-carbon economy and society. We need to look no further than the hurricane-pummeled Caribbean and southern United States, or to the flooding in South India for reminders as to the climate change context that make tonight's discussion so important. So for now, the lights remain on, but can they remain affordable. To help us contemplate this and other questions tonight, I'm very pleased to introduce our speakers for the evening. And the way that the evening will run will be that John Thwaites will present the findings of his report and that will then be responded to by our guests Sarah McNamara and Tony Wood. We will then have an opportunity for a facilitated panel discussion before we open up to the audience. So to introduce our speakers. Professor John Thwaites is Professorial Fellow, Monash University, and Chair of the Monash Sustainable Development Institute and Climate Works Australia. John is also the Chair of Melbourne Water, Chair of the Australian Building Codes Board, and Co-Chair of the Leadership Council of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, launched by the Secretary General of the UN to provide expert advice and support to the development and implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. If you need a chair, I think John might be your man. He was Deputy Premier of Victoria from 1999 to 2007, so just prior to the deregulation of the market, and a member of the Victorian Parliament from 1992 to 2007, during which time he held several ministries, including health, planning, environment, water, and climate change, and I'm sure his is a name familiar to many of you from Victoria. We're also pleased to welcome Sarah McNamara, who was appointed as the Energy Council's General Manager of Corporate Affairs in January 2016. Sarah is a corporate and government relations professional with more than 10 years experience working with policy and regulatory frameworks across the resources and energy sectors. Most recently, she was Chief of Staff to the then Minister for Industry, the Honorable Ian McFarlane, and prior to that, she worked as a Senior Policy Advisor to the Prime Minister, on energy resources, environment, agriculture, and communications. Sarah, and for some of that time, she also headed up its community engagement team for AGL Corporate Affairs, where she worked as head of government affairs as well. This is a woman whose parents are in the audience, and they should be very proud. Sarah began her career as a corporate lawyer, and he has a Bachelor of Arts in Law from the University of Melbourne, so we're very proud of that, Sarah. And she has also worked as a policy advisor in the Howard government. 
And finally, many of you who attend Grattan Institute events will know our third and final speaker, Tony Wood, who has been the Energy Program Director since 2011 after 14 years working at Origin Energy in senior executive roles. From 2009 until 2014, Tony was also the Program Director of Clean Energy Projects at the Clinton Foundation. Hillary's book is out now advising governments in the Asia-Pacific region on the effective deployment of large-scale, low-emission energy technologies. In 2008, Tony was seconded to provide an industry perspective to the first Garneau Climate Change Review. We have an expert panel for you tonight with plenty of discussion and debate, I'm sure. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor John Thwaites. Well, thank you, and I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, where we meet for this important discussion uh, this evening. I'm going to talk about this independent review of electricity and gas retail markets, which uh, I conducted together with uh, two colleagues uh, over the past uh, six months. And this was uh, a bipartisan review, so Terry Moller, a former government minister, myself, and Patricia Faulkner, a former senior bureaucrat and head of consumer affairs. And the government asked us to review the retail section of the market. And of course, as people know, there's a supply chain, there's generation. A lot of the debate now is about generation renewables. There's the poles and wires that distributes the electricity. And then there's the retailers who buy the electricity on behalf of the customers and bill the customers for that. We were only looking at that last part of the chain, the retail part of the chain. And when you get a bill, uh, it, it's not broken up like this, but behind your total bill, there's a number of different costs. So in an electricity bill, you've got that wholesale charge, whether it's renewable or coal or gas. You've got the network charge, which we pay to the network companies for transmitting and distributing the electricity. You've got a charge for environmental schemes like the Victorian Energy Efficiency Target or the Commonwealth Renewable Energy Target. And then you've got this area that I'm going to focus on tonight, which is the retail portion of the bill, the retail charge. And retailers in sending out the bill and calculating that have two components of their charge. One is their costs, um, their billing costs, their uh, marketing costs, their costs of keeping customers, and the profit that they make. And that's how that's made up. Now, competition uh, in Victoria was introduced into the retail market in 2002, and it was completely deregulated in 2009. And the intention at the time was to drive down costs and to provide better services for customers. And the basis for that was a view, and I can stand here as someone who was part of the government that had this view, was that this would use the, the uh, I guess, the benefits of competition to drive more efficiency. And that was the, the theory uh, behind it. Now, uh, when we approached this inquiry, we approached it from one overriding consideration, and that is, 
is the market now operating in the interests of consumers? And that's the whole purpose of having a market and having competition. We concluded that currently the retail energy market is not doing that. That it is not, that it is not uh, operating in the interests of consumers. And the first thing I guess we looked at was well, what's happening to total bills. And if you look at uh, that graph there, that's from Australian Bureau of Statistics, that's the total bill uh, since $2,000 and the increase in that. And what, uh, since the year 2000 and the increase in that. And what you see there is that since uh, 2000, we've had an increase of 200% in total bills. But interestingly, if you look at 2009, when the market was fully deregulated, we've seen a very substantial increase, and indeed, total bills have increased by more than 100% since then. They've, they've more than doubled since 2009. Now, that's the total bill. But remember I said the bill is made up of the wholesale costs and the uh, network charges. And without going into this graph in great detail, what that shows at the top is the total bill. And then at the bottom, you've got the different components of the bill. The brown, for example, is the network. The blue is the wholesale. What you see there is that there has been some increase in network charges, some in wholesale but it doesn't explain fully the total increase in bills. And what we identified through our review is that a significant component of this very large increase in the total bill is the retailer's charge. That is what the retailer is charging as a result of their costs and to make a profit on top of the other parts of the chain, the wholesale and the uh, networking. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this issue and a lot of uh, reflection, but what there hasn't been in the past is a lot of investigation of what customers are actually paying. In the past, a lot of the investigation has been based simply on what the best offers are in the market. That is what you could achieve if you got the best offer. But we decided that really we ought to be looking at what people are actually paying. And that's why we conducted a, a sample survey and then had that reviewed by uh, an organisation, CME, to work out what people, and we took the electricity market, were actually paying. And a lot of our findings were based on that. And essentially what we found from the sample was that uh, the Customers of different retailers were, were paying different amounts, but just to give you an idea of the sample we had, AGL customers were paying in, uh, in total around 1,518, Origin, you know, about $100 less than that. It was in that range, around $1,400, $1,500. But what we then did was say, let's determine what retail charge they're paying. Out of their total bill, how much are people paying for the retailer's portion of their bill? And 
that led us to this graph here, which is the retailer's charge on a typical bill in this sample that we looked at. And essentially what that found was that for a typical bill of a customer using about four megawatt hours, 4,000 kilowatt hours, which is a typical customer, the retail portion of that bill was $420, which was around the same amount as the network charge and considerably more than people were paying for the generation of the electricity which is a somewhat surprising result because I think if you went out and asked most people, they'd think that most of their bill was going towards paying for generating the electricity, not for what they're getting from the retailer in terms of having the bill sent to them and buying the electricity on their behalf. And nationally, most of the debate has been about the cost of the networks, the distributors, the cost of the poles and wires. And you've heard all the stories about gold plating. And what we concluded was, yes, there's been some increase in Victoria, but really that so-called gold plating, the big increase in network charges was actually happening in New South Wales and Queensland. And in Victoria, it appears we have, as one important component of our high prices, a large retailer charge. And when we compared Victoria to other states or indeed other countries, the retailer charge was pretty significant. And that shows for Victoria more than 10 cents a kilowatt hour going to the retailer charge out of a total kilowatt hour charge of maybe 35, 36 cents a kilowatt hour. And then next to Victoria, you see other states, New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland, less than Victoria is paying in the retail charge. And then if you compare it to countries in Europe, it appears that we're paying considerably more here for the retail portion of the bill. And when we broke that up by uh, individual retailers in this sample, that graph shows on the left AGL and then Origin and Energy, the largest retailers, you'll see that they're the large retailers are towards the top of the retailers' charges, and there are the other retailers there. But also on that graph, what you'll see is those horizontal lines. And the bottom horizontal line there you'll see is the ACT regulated retail charge. How much the regulator in the ACT said was appropriate for a retail charge in the ACT. And I think from memory that was around $120, that sort of level. Significantly less than the sort of retail charge the typical customer is paying in the market in Victoria of around $400. And the other horizontal lines represent other regulated charges. And so for us, this is a concern and certainly influenced our policy thinking because if we're paying a lot more here in the market than in a regulated system, you've got to question whether the market is really operating in the interest of customers. Now, another interesting reflection is to compare the amount we're paying for these retailer charges on an electricity bill to a water bill. And on the right, you'll see the breakdown of a typical water bill and 
might be a bit hard to see, but you know, that orange colour on the top left, in a typical water bill of just over $1,000, a customer's paying about $80 for the retailer's charge in sending out the bills and purchasing the, or obtaining the water. Whereas in the electricity system, it's around $400. Now, you know, there'll be discussions and arguments about all the different figures, but the conclusion we reached is that the difference between water, for example, and electricity is so stark that you've got to question whether the uh, current system is working in the interests of consumers. And the other thing that uh, we looked at is, well, what's the difference between what people are actually, what people are actually paying and what the best offer is? Now, what we found is that overall, on average, people were paying 21% more than the best offer. And in dollar terms, on average, that worked out to $294. But interestingly, you could sort of categorise people in different groups. And on the left is the low-saving group. There appears to be a group of about 30% of people who are participating in the market and the gap between what they're paying and the lowest offer is relatively small, $84. That's the group on the left, about 30% uh, of the market. But 70% of the market, 70% of the consumers are paying well above the odds. And the middle group there are paying $223 more. And then there's a group on the right which represents nearly a quarter of all customers who are paying $500 more. $500 more than the best offer. And so, you know, clearly this is a significant issue. And in the past, a lot of the focus has been, well, in a sense, it's the customer's fault because they're not getting on the best offer. But the way we looked at it was, well, is the system working when so many people, 70% of people, are so far away from the best offer? And another interesting factor we saw was uh, a high portion now of people's bills, the bill you're getting, is now fixed charges. That is the daily supply charge. Now, what th this graph shows on the left of, of that, in the brown, is the total uh, fixed charge in the typical bill. And for the Osnet area, it's around uh, $420, you'll see. Now, often the statement is made, well, the retailers have to charge a fixed charge in their bill because the networks are charging them. So they have to pass that on. And so what we did was look at what the networks are charging the retailer for a fixed charge, and that's in the blue and the green. And what you'll see there on the right, the, the other colour green, is the, is the balance. And what it shows is that, yes, there is a fixed charge that the networks are charging, but the green at the, at the right there, up here, this, this is a very significant fixed charge that the retailers themselves are charging. And of course, that's putting the burden back on customers of any risk of demand reduction. 
or putting it another way, customers aren't able to reduce their bills by being more energy efficient. And what, when we looked at it also, we saw is that over time, the network fixed charges were rising, you'll see, as are the retailer, but the retailer fixed charges have risen more than the network fixed charges. And in recent years, the network fixed charge here has come down a bit as the cost of metering systems has reduced, and that hasn't been passed on to customers. So that's the, the background on which we had to make some policy recommendations to the government. A background of very significant increasing in total bills, but also a very significant retailer's charge that seems to be greater here in Victoria than in other states and, and elsewhere. And so what we had to do was then say, well, what, what should we do about this? But you know, what might be causing the fact that the market doesn't seem to be working? And we examined a whole lot of the factors and looked at these, but above all, this was the factor. That the electricity market, unlike so many other markets, is one where it's an essential service. Customers can't exit. And so if price goes up, you can't say, well, I'm not having that anymore. You just have to keep paying. And you know, even a market, you could say, in a lot of ways, is similar like petrol to power your car, the energy for your car, there's more ability to shift out of that because you can take public transport. But in electricity, you can't even do that. And so there's a constraint on competition. There's a natural uh, difficulty for the benefits of competition to apply. So that's the first and probably the most significant reason we saw, but there are other reasons as well. Well, this is something that I really learnt through this process. I didn't understand it at the start of our review. Prior to having a competitive market, the total cost for the retailers was pretty small. You know, basically it was about the billing system and, and whatever costs were needed in, and financing, but it was not a huge amount. And if you look at the regulated price in Australian Capital Territory, 120, $130, $40, it's a small amount. So it wasn't as though there's a huge amount of fat to reduce by introducing competition. And yet when we introduced competition, we introduced a whole series of costs on the market, namely the marketing costs, the customer acquisition and retention costs. So, for example, these switching sites that you see, someone's got to pay for them. The way it works in these commercial switching sites is that you go on the, the, and you go and you find a, a new retailer. The new retailer has to pay the switching site for that. That can be very expensive. Now, who pays for that? All the consumers end up paying for that. And when we actually looked at what costs um, retailers were incurring, we saw they've increased very substantially as a result of competition. And some retailers are spending an enormous amount just on trying to get customers uh, or, or retain customers. So that was the second thing. 
The third aspect to look at here is the structure of the market, where you had a market with three very large retailers, AGL Origin and Energy Australia, that are vertically integrated. That means they generate the electricity as well as sell it. They have some significant competitive advantages over the smaller new entrants. And in our view, based on what we saw, there was not a huge amount of competitive pressure on the big three from the small new entrants. And part of that was because of the structure of the market. Then the fourth thing about energy that makes it difficult for the market to operate is that actually energy is very hard to visualise. It's not like petrol. When you go to the petrol station, you know what you're getting. You're paying $1.30 a litre. You fill up at the time and you drive off and you know how far you've got. With an electricity bill, you have to know what the daily charge is, the fixed charge. You have to know what the variable charge is per kilowatt hour. You have to know how much you're using and maybe when you're using it. And you have to be able to work all that out in your head. And then you get a bill every couple of months, which you probably don't look at because now you've got a 30% discount that says you, you pay on time and you pay automatically deduct, deduct out of your bank account. So most people actually don't engage in the way they do when they buy petrol. It's much harder to engage. And the final area which is getting quite a bit of publicity and I haven't spent a lot of time on tonight and the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister have um, you know, talked about this are these industry practices like discounts where, you know, frankly, the whole discounting system is totally misleading. The public don't understand it. People think they're getting a 30% or a 40% discount, but they don't know what it's off. And indeed it changes and different retailers have different uh, baselines for that. And even if you do get a discount, how long does it last? Now, you can get a discount and then the underlying fixed charge and variable charge can change. So you're still getting the discount but your real bill is getting bigger. And so the industry practices have led to a situation where people don't know, they're confused, and many of them, I think, sensibly are saying there's not much point in engaging with the market. So that, that was the explanation as we saw why this wasn't working, and really that explanation summarises and explains why our first recommendation was this one, which is that there should be a requirement that all retailers make as part of the series of offers they can make one offer, which is a regulated, no frills, basic service offer. And this would be regulated by the Essential Services Commission here in Victoria. And for the 70% of people that clearly are paying way above the odds now, aren't able to work out the complicated system that we have, they can know that there is a reasonable regulated offer that they can use and avoid the confusion. And uh, we understand that um, if this recommendation is accepted by the government, there will need to be you know, some discussion about the detail on how this will operate. 
but our basic principle is that this should be set by the Essential Services Commission, which is independent, and it should be based on how much people use and, and people can have confidence in that. So that was our first and probably most important uh, recommendation. But we also made a number of other recommendations to make the market clearer and to empower customers. And one recommendation that we believe is important is that any marketing of offers should be on the basis of dollars, not on the basis of discounts. So that people can clearly understand what they're paying in a bottom line dollar sense. Uh, and we also, uh, recommended that there be changes to the way in which contracts uh, and uh, benefit periods are regulated and, and marketed. Currently, there is a requirement that uh, the retailers notify people at the end of a contract period, but not necessarily at the end of their benefit. And more and more people are on evergreen contracts now, which go on and on, but they might have lost their benefits. And so we're recommending that there be some reforms there to make it much simpler and clearer for customers. Uh, we're also recommending uh, that there be more access to uh, smart meter data for those who do want it. And we've made some recommendations to protect uh, low income and vulnerable customers. One of those recommendations is that the government look at a group purchasing on behalf of low-income schemes to group purchase, uh, low-income groups to group purchase um, electricity on their behalf. We also believe that the Essential Service Commission should be given more power to monitor the market, to find out exactly what's happening, and to develop a market code, an energy market code that has the consumer front and centre. And I guess that's where I'd finish up with because that has to be the objective of any system. The objective is not how many retailers we've got or what the churn is or any of these other indicators. The objective should be how is this system affecting consumers? Thank you. Thanks, John, and thanks very much to the Grattan Institute for inviting me to speak tonight. It is actually true that my parents are in the audience, and whilst I'd like to think that they're here to hear me speak, I think they're also here because, like all of us, they're worried about the rising cost of their electricity bills. And there is no doubt the industry doesn't resile from the fact that this is a really big problem for average consumers, particularly in the Victorian market. But there are three points I'd like to make to you here tonight in relation to that issue. And the first point is really simple. The problem of rising electricity prices in this state is not to do with the behaviour of retailers. It is because of the volatility in the wholesale market that we are seeing and the ongoing supply issues we have in Victoria and elsewhere in the NEM in relation to the supply of reliable baseload energy. 
we know that the closure of the Northern Power Station in South Australia and the more recent closure of Hazelwood here in Victoria, Hazelwood punched a 20% hole in the base load generation capacity of this state. That leads to massive volatility issues in the wholesale market. And one thing that retailers have to do that is really important, and it forms part of their retailer charge, and it is hard to price accurately when you're looking in retrospect at how retailers have behaved, is wholesale market risk. And that is an increasingly difficult issue for retailers to grapple with, and the cost of prices in the wholesale market are a key cause of, of rising prices here. Now, what is the answer to this? The answer does not lie in re-regulating retail prices here in Victoria. We know, as an industry, that we have suffered 10 years of policy uncertainty at a federal level, and that needs to stop, and the sooner, the better. That is why we in the industry have been banging the drum relentlessly for the need, uh, on the question of the need for bipartisan, reliable policy that we can actually predict will be sustainable into the future. We believe we have a suite of policy options that represent something the industry can work with on the table now in Canberra, and we're hopeful that we'll get to a place where there will be bipartisan support for the, all of the recommendations in the Finkel review, including the clean energy target or a, um, or, or, or a replacement for it. However, um, so what we really do want to see is that really strong federal policy support to enable the right investment in the market, because when we don't have the right investment signals and policy certainty is what enables investors to have the confidence to invest, then we're not going to get investment in the new reliable generation that the system here in Victoria so desperately needs. The second point I'd like to make is that it's really important that energy retailers and the energy industry as a whole is able to continue to be flexible and to innovate for the new energy future that we're facing. We all know that we're looking at an energy future where people want more engagement with their energy services, where people have more solar panels, more batteries, where there is a lot more intermittent wind and solar generation coming into the NEM, which makes all of it more complex. And we know from AEMO's recent report that that complexity is starting to mean that we have real supply issues coming down the line soon. So what we need to do is make sure that our energy market has sufficient flexibility to be able to respond to those demand issues that are certainly coming down the line in the future. And we hope we can get to a point where individual consumers, if they want, are able to engage with the market and agree, for instance, to not use as much electricity at certain times and, and be rewarded for that, uh, or stay in the market if they're prepared to pay a slightly higher price. And those kind of price signals are really important for a market that has changed fundamentally from the way it was set up in the 20th century when things were relatively simple and electricity was being delivered you know, straight from a uh, dirty brown coal-fired power station uh, to your door through a relatively straightforward network system. So we do need innovative solutions and we believe that the market is working hard on those solutions and it's actually some of the smaller players that are doing the best work in this space. And that's why we are concerned to make sure that we have the creativity still uh, embedded in, in our industry to enable that work to be ongoing. Now, thirdly, I'd like to say that 
I think that one of the really important things um, for this industry is that we focus on delivering uh, transparency to our customers and helping them to engage with the market, which we know they find confusing. Now, retailers acknowledge that things need to change. And the work they've been doing recently uh, in relation to the PM's Retailer Roundtable and the work that they'll do now, I hope, uh, on the back of the really strong recommendations contained in the Thwaites Review, and I'm referring there to recommendations 3 through 11, which we support, when implemented can really work well, we think, to deliver better transparency. We know that customers don't like discounting. It's confusing to them. We know that customers would like a simple comparator rate, for example, where they can analyse uh, what they might save and uh, how much their next energy bill might cost them. But there are complexities to this and the industry needs to work through these complexities so we can make sure we're not misrepresenting to customers uh, what their future energy bills might look like. Because, of course, there are a lot of different inputs into an energy bill and people's usage can also change. It's a, it's a volume-weighted product. We're really looking forward as an industry to working with governments and regulators on removing these barriers to understanding the energy market. And we do think it's important work. And we're very supportive of the work the Thwaites panel has done in identifying some measures that will go a long way to achieve those goals. <coughs> now, having indicated our support for recommendations three through 11, uh, I'm afraid I, I cannot be so supportive in relation to recommendations one and two. To say they're problematic for the industry would be a, an enormous understatement. They represent an extremely retrograde step in terms of the way this industry is regulated. A re-regulation of prices would, deliver a, would not deliver to the future energy market the kind of flexibility it would need, and companies will close. Small retail companies will not be able to compete in an environment where a basic service offer remains the standard offer for most, if not all, customers in the market. Those companies will close and the jobs and the investment and the innovation that they are working on at the moment will go with them. And one of the reasons that it will be so hard to compete, even for the incumbent retailers, is that we know that the intention of the basic service offer is for the ESC to set a price that does not include some of the basic costs of doing business. And by that I mean the, the costs of acquisition and, and retention of customers. This makes it really incredibly difficult to uh, imagine a basic service offer that would be anything other than less than the cost of doing business, which means large incumbent retailers will stay in the market and smaller retailers will have to exit. We believe that this would be essentially throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And we also don't understand what the basic service offer would do in a market in replacement to the standing offer. Now, people don't like standing offers, but standing offers do perform uh, a not well publicised important public service. The standing offer is set by each retailer in the market as a default offer. I like to think of it as the sort of offer you have before you dive into the market. It's, it's the offer you're on. It's a high offer. It's usually the ceiling or the highest offer in the market or thereabouts. It's set differently by each retailer, but they're all kind of about the same. And it's the offer you're automatically on to ensure that you can receive the essential service that is electricity. So when you move into a new house 
and you still haven't, you haven't bothered to pick up the phone to you know, tell Origin or AGL or Simply Energy or whoever you want to use who you are, a standing offer is the default offer that you will automatically be on. And it enables the terms and it enables your energy provider to provide you with electricity under really straightforward terms and conditions so you actually have a contract in the market. And the idea of a standing offer, and there's a good reason why less than 10% of Victorians are on it, it's because it is expensive and it is designed to be a temporary offer from which you dive into, if you like, the market and find an offer that's better for you. And it is true that there are a wide range of priced offers in our market at the moment. But price dispersion is a function of a competitive market working. And what we need to do as an industry and with government is to make sure that people are empowered to make the choices in that competitive market to get the best deal possible for their circumstances. And of course, it is absolutely okay if people don't want to make the effort to get the best deal from their circumstances. Customers come in all shapes and sizes. In, in some ways, I think there are probably three categories of customers. The first and most important category are, are, are vulnerable customers and financially disadvantaged customers who, through no fault of their own, may really struggle to engage with the competitive energy market. Retailers are heavily regulated in this space. We've just come to the end of a process uh, with the Essential Services Commission in relation to how hardship programs operate to ensure that they capture and help the very people that need that help to keep engaging with their retailer, be on the best offer and manage their energy, energy bills and their, and their energy usage, usage. The second group of customers are, I would say, kind of interested in energy and prepared to engage with the market and there, there is no problem for them in engaging with the market. They probably sit down once a year with a comparative site and, and work out what the best deal is for them. And the third and as important group of, of customers uh, I would call the uh, engaged but not interested kind of group of customers. And these are people who simply don't, cannot justify spending the time to engage with the market and shop around and are happy or at least passive about paying the cost of not doing so. And that's okay too because it can, you're not obliged to uh, be involved in a competitive market any more than you're obliged to be involved with where you shop for your supermarket groceries. Uh, it's entirely up to you whether you want to buy your bread and milk at David Jones Food Hall, at Coles or Woolworths, at Aldi or at Costco. And that's appropriate in a competitive environment where you have, where you have a range of choices. So uh, in conclusion, I'd like to say that as an industry, we do support the recommendations of the Thwaites reports 3 through 11 in terms of making sure that our consumer protections framework really works to the benefit of all customers. However, items 1 and 2 of the recommendations are really, really problematic and we are actually doing some analysis ourselves in the Energy Council and we will be putting out a report uh, by Oakley Greenwood in the next few days, which actually picks apart some of the assumptions that the Thwaites report relied on when it talked about retail margins and other behaviours in the market. It is really difficult to look with any accuracy at what retail margins actually are. But published data uh, by publicly listed companies such as AGL and Origin, which are independently reviewed by auditors, suggest that their actual margins on a $1,400 bill are about two $250, not $423, as the Thwaites report has suggested. And this is a really important distinction because if 
if retail margins are actually in a, in a more sensible range, then the justification for re-regulating and killing a market and driving out retail businesses and all of the innovation they bring uh, does, not, does no longer exist. And we would really encourage the government to look closely at those recommendations and understand the unintended consequences that implementing recommendations one and two would bring. Because if uh, the government feels that it might be responsible for energy prices at the moment, it will certainly be 100% responsible for them if it itself is setting the prices. And to set that price with the volatility we have in the wholesale market in particular is a very brave uh, a game to play, I would suggest, and we would be very concerned about a regulator's ability to be able to do that with any accuracy. Thank you. So, um, firstly, I should point out um, for anybody who may have uh, been a little confused by the way we introduced a couple of things before is that Grattan has an ongoing relationship with the State Library across all of Grattan's activities and we have regular events, uh, public pitch issues like this tonight. Secondly, we've had for at least seven or eight years a very strong ongoing relationship with the Melbourne Energy Institute where we focus particularly on the issues associated with the energy component of what Grattan does. Tonight is one of those um, programs where, uh, tonight where we bring all the three organisations together. So we very much value our relationship with both the Melbourne Energy Institute and with the State Library. I think I, what I should do is, is um, since there's obviously been, um, people talk about, well, there's been 49 50ths of agreement on the clean energy target, other the Finkel recommendations, that surely we've now seen you know, nine elevenths of, of agreement between um, the energy industry and um, the, uh, the Swaits Review. So we should focus on the two elevenths um, that we don't seem to have agreement on. Um, and I should confess, by the way, um, it wasn't in, my intro in the introduction that not only did I actually run one of these retail businesses for several years, and like John, was a very strong proponent of retail competition, not just in Victoria, but elsewhere. Um, but I was also the first chairman of the Energy Retailers Association. So I've got form um, in this whole space. <laughs> and yet for me, for what was the most difficult issue and the, the people who work with me on our report, um, the thing I was struggling with was challenging my fundamental thinking about this retail sector because the more we looked at it, the, more, the less comfortable we were that this was an issue that could easily be explained by um, some of the factors that were, people were using. So we came to the conclusion that there were some fundamental problems. Now, at the core of this is the, is the, is the data. Now, John alluded to it, and Sarah specifically referred to it, and that is the proposition that retailers are making particularly high margins, and certainly the work we did, and, even, and we included an estimate of what we think the costs of retailing, which include the cost of managing risk of purchasing the electricity in the wholesale market includes. And in our analysis, we, and we made an estimate of that, and we said that we thought that the retail margins were higher than they should be. They were higher than they were in other sectors, and we thought they were also unusually high in Victoria. The AEMC published a report only a few weeks ago that said that the profits, the, retail, the profit margins of the retailers, the big three retailers in Victoria are 40% higher than they are in other states. 
Now, that's a bit hard. You know, that's where I would question one of Sarah's comments, that if there was only the wholesale market, then why, what is it about Victoria that would justify that big difference? The data in terms of getting what people are actually paying, as John suggested, is quite difficult because retailers don't voluntarily provide that information. They'll tell you what their standing offer is what their and what their best deal is they're advertising, but they won't actually tell you how many customers they have on what actual margins or actual prices or actual deals. And so that means that you act, it's very difficult to work out what the actual profit margins are. And so what's therefore important is that the work that is currently being done by the ACCC commissioned by the federal government earlier this year, running in overlap with the Swaits Review is so critically important because the ACCC has the powers to actually get the data from the retailers. So I would certainly at the very least caution the Victorian government before implementing recommendations one and two, if they're looking at that and based upon the Swaits Review to make sure that they've taken into account the conclusions or the initial conclusions of the ACCC review because they will publish their preliminary report uh, very shortly and that should give us some much better insight into the, into the data. I want to come back to um, therefore what we thought were the key issues and key recommendations and some of this um, very strongly overlaps with some of John's comments. Um, what is it about electricity? And you know, John made the point about the way we buy it. And Paula Conboy, who's the chair of the AER, said to me, it's a bit like if you went into the supermarket each week and filled your trolley with groceries and walked out through the electronic checkout and did that every week, and then three months later you got a bill from, the, from Coles telling you what your bill was, and you look at this damn thing and it's sort of thousands of dollars, you, you just pay it because you'd no way known you're going to work out well, did I buy all that stuff, how much did it cost, all this sort of thing. It's a very difficult market to engage with. And not, alone that, not only that, as John said, it's also a market you can simply not choose to buy from. It's not obvious that up until now, and of course in Victoria, we've had more competitors than we've had in any other state in the country, and yet we seem to have the biggest problem. And it's not obvious to us not only are there issues to do with price, but there's not been that much innovation. Now, innovation that says we're going to give you a discount for paying on time or a, disc or a discount for paying through direct debit is hardly the most fundamental innovation we've seen on the planet this century. Um, or, as some of the stuff I was certainly involved with doing, offering people magazine subscriptions or, or uh, things like that, or, or RACV memberships. I mean, they're fun to have, but they don't really go to the heart of the product, because the product is the product. Um, it is, it's a very homogeneous product. Um, and some of the innovation just makes it more complicated. When we've spoken to people about this work, just about everybody you speak to has their anecdote about how difficult they found it to engage with the market. You know, Sarah made the point you'd think it'd be pretty simple for smart people. Well, you better know how to run a spreadsheet and how to, because how to, it actually turns out to be not as simple um, as you'd like to think it should be. We don't have simple comparator rates, and it's very good news that the retailers have agreed to do that in, in their discussions with the Prime Minister. But, you know, I know lots of people who've said to me, well, you know, I've got to look at my daily demand charge, I've got to look at these, um, the, 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 uh, the um, different, different uh, peak and off-peak charges, the discount, as John said, sometimes is off one of those and not both, and how do I... It is, very, it is actually quite difficult, and people who even know this sector have just given up in frustration. 
Um, the issue of, one issue that John pointed out, which I think is particularly important, is that question of um, people who are disadvantaged, vulnerable customers, as Sarah described, them more on low incomes, for example. And that is the case that most states in Australia, including Victoria, the state government pays out hundreds of millions of dollars to provide support via various forms of rebate, some of them are fixed dollars, some of them are percentages, to those customers on, those con on concessional payments. And yet, many of those customers aren't on the best deals. So what's happening is that the government is basically passing that money to the retailers. Now, you'd say, well, simply, surely, the answer would be to make sure that a requirement that all people on concessional payments are on the best deal. Turns out that there are some tricky regulatory issues here about what's called full and informed consent that in, sounds a bit peculiar when you think about it in this context, but you might think about other contexts where it does make sense. And that is that you can't force people to go on the best offer. If they choose, if they don't actively with full and informed consent choose the best offer, then you can't force them to have the best offer. So there's some, there's some important, now, there are things that could be done to fix some of these problems, but they do require changes in the regulatory structure and the retailers do have an argument in those cases that the regulations need to change and they're not necessarily, could, you wouldn't, it would be unfair, arguably, to accuse retailers of gouging, um, in that case, the government, for, for what's going on here. So I think the, you know, and finally, the thing I'd point I'd, I would make in this space is that this issue has been emerging for a while and has been recognised for a while. And I would question why it was necessary for the Prime Minister to shirt front the companies to get them to agree to do some of the things they've now seemed to be very, very happy to go ahead and do. Because my hypothesis would be if they had done some of those things earlier, found ways to fix the regulation, to get rid of discounts, to get concessional customers on the best offer, maybe we would have seen a better outcome. Maybe we wouldn't have seen as many customers on bad deals and maybe they would have avoided the sort of regulatory imposition that is, in, that is certainly implied quite clearly in, in uh, recommendations one and two because we also said, look, we think there are things you should do at three levels. One is you should certainly do, you know, writing to customers is a great idea. Most likely it won't last very long. Yes, it overloaded the Energy Made Easy website for a while, but that's not going to last, I don't think. Secondly, there are some structural things you'll do, which will last, hopefully. The sort of things I've just been talking about, and basically our recommendations three through 11 of the Thwaites Review, do those, put them in place, and then monitor this. Because thirdly, the basic service offer, which conceptually we think is a good idea, but needs to be, if we're going to proceed with that, with a great deal of caution. Because we do need to make sure that the potential innovation in those product areas Sarah has mentioned are not killed off too early. We do need to make sure that you know, the, the way these things are put together is done very carefully. And I'd say our argument would be, have that weapon in place, do the work and thinking about how it might be designed, but do those other things first, because it's still possible we could actually get a better result without such a heavy-handed approach. Thank you. And John Thwaites, let's, let's start with the two 11ths. 
because really that seems to be the issue here. And the basic service offer, it, it does appear likely to be supported by the Victorian government, but retailers and experts, some of whom are on this stage with you now, um, they've been very critical of that. Sarah McNamara, you just called the basic service offer extremely retrograde. And there's an argument that it may be too onerous and too difficult to implement. So John Thwaites, is the basic service offer really the best solution to Victoria's energy price problem? Uh, well, clearly, I, we wouldn't have recommended it otherwise. And I, without going through the arguments again, uh, we didn't start with that view. We didn't start, I can assure you, that was not where we thought we would end up when we started. And it's a bipartisan panel. Uh, pretty experienced panel. It was really only after looking at the way the market is operating, but more than the way it's operating, the essential nature of the market. We, we came to the conclusion that simply by making all these other changes, 3 to 11, yes, you would improve things, but you weren't going to change that fundamental structure, which was that it's an essential service, people couldn't exit the market, and the amount of savings from the old um, regulated system weren't matched, able to be uh, matched or offset because of these in large competition costs, uh, costs that we're imposing on the system. Sarah McNamara, you want to come in here? Yeah, look, firstly, I'm interested to hear you say, Sarah, that you think the Victorian government will support recommendations one and two. That's uh, certainly a bit of new news, I think, for the industry at this point. We have been informed by the government quite appropriately that they will go through a detailed consultation process and issue their response to the Thwaites panel report by the end of the year. Now, more recent media reports are suggesting that the government may, without consultation, decide to support in principle all of the recommendations of the Thwaites report. And as an industry, and I think generally uh, as consumers, we should be concerned if the government were to take that step. Because even if the basic service offer is an appropriate solution, and I, I hasten to say that John and I will agree to disagree on that, to implement that without any consideration of the alternatives or any forensic cost-benefit analysis to identify unintended consequences and costs to Victorian consumers is, frankly, not, not a wise course of action for any Victorian government. And we want to take the time to work with the Victorian government through each of these recommendations and make sure they are equipped with all of the information about the impact so they can make the right decision. Tony Wood, I'll bring you in here because you've consistently argued over the years that the market needs to be allowed to demonstrate its effectiveness. And now there's a question about the market being allowed to continue in the form it has been since 2009. How long do you think we should wait for that market to demonstrate its effectiveness? And should Victorians be asked to wait in light of rising prices? I think there's a... <clears throat> those of you who have lived on another planet wouldn't have noticed the debate going on between the current federal government and AGL about the Liddell power station. Um, there is a dynamic in the energy system at the moment, and maybe more broadly, that um, markets are crap. Basically, they don't work. Privatisation was a waste of time. It's too expensive um, that uh, we need to basically renationalise the system. And the beginnings of it are already being seen 
in South Australia, uh, in Canberra, in uh, New South Wales, and so forth. Um, and in Queensland, of course, they still own it all anyway. So, um, and so I think there's a we are we would be fundamentally quite nervous about that because we think the underlying principles that were established back in the mid 90s about markets being a primary source of good outcomes is still true. So when we look at this retail sector and you come, you know, and you look at it and we saw, you know, many of the conclusions John reached, particularly that fundamental one about do the benefits from competition outweigh the costs of competition? Now John's conclusion is that they don't. Ours is that they don't seem to, but maybe they might yet. Now I think we are that's a very interesting way of sitting, sitting on the fence, and I can feel the splinters coming through my trousers as I do it. But I guess the, the concern for us is, there could, is, is, is unintended consequences. Because in the energy sector, we've seen many responses to um, diagnosis of a problem, which has created more problems. And you say, oh, why do we do, we have to fix that, right? It's a bit like, you take medicine for something and the side effects of the medicine are worse than the original problem. So while I, the concept of the basic service offer and the structure of the service offer, including the uh, not allowing uh, the costs of competing, we completely agree with. But what we're nervous about is whether we really need that medicine quite yet and have we really understood the problem and have we really made sure that we can do this in a way that's going to not cause unintended consequences. Now, I don't think that's something that needs to take a long time. And for example, in particular, the analytical work from the ACCC will tell us a lot more about some of the analytical work that both um, John has had input on and we did some work on. Mm. Um, John Thwaites, let's focus in for a moment on unintended consequences and in particular one consequence which both you and Sarah mentioned and it goes to an issue of the debate between customer fault versus system issues. And I'm thinking particularly about social inequality in current energy pricing, which is certainly something that your report seems to suggest exists and is a real problem. And we know that groups like the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and St. Vincent's are dedicating resources to these issues. Do you see energy pricing as a social equity issue? And what do you think can be done to address that? Well, it's clearly a social equity issue. Without energy, you can't warm your home in winter. Uh, you can't have a fridge or a stove. So energy is absolutely a fundamental right that people should have. And it is fair to say that uh, you know, for many families and, and single people that uh, the costs of energy are such that they're, they're in energy poverty. They're not able to heat their homes sufficiently. They're cutting back on things that they uh, should not. Having said all of that, we don't think the discussion, though, should be just about that. We think a market should be for all consumers, just like our health system is for all, everyone. In fact, one of the reasons our health system works better than the American is that we all have a joint ownership of it. And if we try to just categorise action as just for one group, then in many cases that group doesn't get as good a service as if the whole of society has a well-working system. Sarah, you picked up on this issue as well. What role do you see energy retailers playing in relation to social equity in energy pricing? 
Well, I think retailers are acutely aware of the role energy plays as an essential service in our community. That's, that they work within that framework every day and they are heavily regulated in relation to how they deal with customers who are experiencing difficulties and how they deal with customers who refuse to engage. And the standing offer I mentioned is, is, performs an important consumer protection function in that way. I do think that in practice retailers have really well-designed hardship programs for customers that ring them and explain that they are in financial hardship. Quite bespoke programs, actually, with various degrees of uh, assistance and, um, you know, referrals to financial counsellors and the like, because retailers, it's in their interest to keep people engaged and able to pay some, if not all, of their bill if they're going through a tough time. But even before you get to that hardship program, there is absolutely no, which there is no barrier to entry to other than being in hardship, your retailer is going to offer you any number of assistance measures if you ring and say that you're having trouble paying your bill. When I get my next energy bill, if I rang my retailer and said, gee, you know, I've just lost my job, you know, the, the, or, um, you know, the Grattan Institute thing didn't go very well and I got the sack or whatever, um, uh, and, you know, can I have an extra couple of months to pay my bill or can I pay 50% now, 50% in a month? I guarantee you any retailer is going to agree to that because they want you to be engaged and talking to them about your circumstances. Now, retailers aren't community service organisations themselves, but they do recognise the essential nature of the service they're providing, and they do work really hard to make sure that they can keep some form of energy supply going to households, even those who are in uh, real financial strife. I think, Sarah, one of the issues here is that the essential service characteristic is absolutely one of the things, right? And for those non-economists around, Tony, the essential services characteristic, explain what that means. Well, Simply, as John said, you, you can't survive, in the, in, certainly in today's society, without electricity, right? It, it would be a, a, a very difficult oh. challenge. I mean, some people would say, one of my daughters would say, an essential service includes, you know, so many hours of television a day and so many, a whole lot of other stuff. But the iPad. The principle, I think you understand. So um, I think there's another issue, though, that, that is there are other elements around electricity that are quite challenging in terms of how we engage with it. And, you know, if people... One of the interesting questions here is, let's assume that we deal with people on low incomes and vulnerable customers in a way that would be maybe more effective than we've done today. And as, as I indicated, and I think the energy industry would like to fix is the regulatory impositions the way that works. Even John's suggestion of putting all that to tender or something, right? If people choose not to, should, is, there a, is there any reason why there should be intervention? One argument is, well, why would you do it or anything else? But the thing is that even in things like mortgages, the industry did come up with simple comparator rates to make life a whole lot more simple. I think there are some challenges with electricity in the way, A, we buy it, as John described, and B, the complexity of comparing so that, you know, 80% of Australians, according to choice, think electricity bills are the biggest household problem they've got. And yet, 50% of them haven't changed retailers, even though they actually know that they could save the sort of money John was talking about. So there is a question as to why should there be intervention? What is it about this thing where people are worried about electricity but don't do anything about it? Well, well I'd, I'd like to jump in on that because I think this has been one of the problems that people have blamed the consumer and to have this attitude, oh, it's their fault, they're not, they're not interested. And, and Sarah said, oh, there's this engaged but not interested consumer. 
people can't justify spending their time, they're happy about the cost. Well, they're not happy about the cost. And what they're doing is they're making the assessment that, it, that the amount of effort and time that they have to put in does not necessarily lead to a better outcome because in so many cases we've seen it doesn't. They lose the benefit of the discount after a period. The, the fixed charge or the variable charge changes. And if you want to see what people really think, there was a poll yesterday, essential, uh, the media poll, where 85% of people in this poll said that they supported some form of government regulation of electricity prices and 5% opposed. So, you know, I don't think there's this overwhelming feeling out there that we're happy with the system. I think it's quite the contrary. And I think the idea that we should set up a system and blame the consumer for the faults of the market is fundamentally flawed. And Sarah McNamara, you want to come in there, and then I'm conscious that we have a room full of consumers out here with questions of their own. Look, I'll just be very brief. I, I, the industry does not want to blame consumers. This is not a blame game, but industry... People are entitled to engage or not engage with the market. What we need to make sure we're doing is ensuring that there are no reasonable barriers to people who are not... Uh, not uh, encumbered or unable to engage with the market to engage. And if you, if you can't be bothered, then that's okay too. It's not a blame thing, but if we make one basic service offer the price for the, the vast majority of the market, people are going to find that that price is not as low as some of the cheap offers in the market, and it will do absolutely nothing to fix the other inputs that come into your retail price from the wholesale market and network charges, which will continue, in particular in the wholesale market, to be extremely volatile. So your bills may not come down even with a basic service offer implementation. So now over to you, audience. We have some roaming microphones. We've got quite a few hands going up. We'll ask when you ask your question to be as brief and direct as possible. And if there's a particular panelist you'd like to hear from, feel free to direct your question to that panelist. I see there's a person very close to a microphone here, so we'll go there first. And there's another in the middle. I'm not sure how many roving mics we have. Uh, thank you for that wonderful presentation, all parties. Um, the last time I saw, there were something like 4,000 offers available in Victoria. Uh, and if it takes me five minutes to digest every offer, that's 20,000 hours. And the last thing is I saw was on those 4,000 offers, they only last about six weeks. Then they change. They're always changing. How, as a consumer, do I have time to examine all those offers, to select the best one for me? Well, I think the best advice that we like to give consumers in the industry is that the easiest way to check that you're on a good offer is to have a copy of your most recent bill and to go to the, um, the Energy Compare website run by the Victorian Government. Not one of the comparator sites that's a commercial one that, you know, you may be getting a less clear idea of what's what depending on the commissions being paid. Go to the Victorian Energy Compare website with a copy of your bill it will not be the most fun 10, 15 minutes of your life, I'm sure, but you will get a snapshot then and there of what's available in the market. And if I, my advice would be then every six months or 12 months to check in and make sure that you're still on the kind of deal that's at that better end of the range of cheap offers. One of the um, uh, suggestions has been, I think, in principle agreed, but is slightly complex to implement, 
by the retailers is one that wasn't, I don't think, on John's list, and that is the idea that um, on your bill you would have one of those um, QR codes, and then what you would do is basically scan that. And in theory, at least, apparently this is working in the UK, that that would then, because one of the complexities in this is that you, unless you've been able to go back into your, your bills and work out what your actual consumption has been, it's very hard to answer the questions you have to answer when you look at these, um, these online services, right? Now, the theory is that will do that for you. Now, I haven't seen the detail of that, and Sarah may have a bit more insight as to how practically effective that could be, but if it was available, that seems to me one of the things that help, might help break through the complexity of, of how do I work out, well, if I just bought the electricity next year that I bought last year the same way, what, how much would I save, right? Look, certainly in the recent meetings with the Prime Minister, the Minister and the Treasurer and the Deputy PM, we have discussed and committed as, as a group of retailers to looking into the portability of consumer information so you don't have to sit there with your bill and if there is an easier way to do it, and the QR codes was one option raised by the Minister, which I understand occurred in the UK, then we'll certainly look to implement that. But there's a lot of technical detail as to our ability to do that and the difficulty with energy is accuracy in terms of how you're predicting what your future bill will be like. And we need to make sure that people's consumption data can be an accurate uh, predictor, if you like, of their future consumption. And, and that's a really hard thing to, um, to get a handle on. So we're working through those issues now. John Thwaites, to give you a chance to come in here, your own report demonstrates that there are significant savings to be had for those consumers who are plugged into the market. Haha. Um, how do you think we can encourage more Victorians to be active energy consumers? Well, they have to have more confidence that uh, the market is working, which is why, and fair and comprehensible, which is why we made a number of recommendations that offers be uh, in terms of dollars, uh, that uh, there be a fixed amount, that you, uh, a fixed period for which an offer would last. So now you can enter an offer and the next month that can change um, because the, the underlying uh, fixed or variable charges can change. So we recommended that if you enter an offer then it ought to be fixed for 12 months so you know what you're getting. So at least you can um, sit back for 12 months. I mean Sarah said um, you know, do it every 12 months but you can't do it every 12 months because it could change. So unless you have some sort of guaranteed period people aren't going to have uh, the confidence. But I think the question itself indicated some of the problems for people, that there are just so many offers and so many factors in the market, it is very difficult. I've used the Victorian Energy Compare site myself. It's, you know, it's, it took me quite some time to, to do it and it didn't work the first couple of times and then it did and that was good trying to get your own data in it. So all of these systems are complex and it's not just the Victorian site. You try using any you know, online calculator site, you know, it, they're not that easy, which is why, once again, we come back to the recommendation for most people, if they can get a no-frills offer that takes away the confusion that's in their interest. And we have another questioner patiently waiting here. Uh, yeah, look, I, to look at it, we've looked at the complexity of the market. Uh, to take a simple area, the price of gas which is an input to the electricity price and a direct cost to Victorians and also a, a potential 
caused of them losing their jobs if it continues to be high. I mean, we've, we've got benchmarks that show we're paying twice as much or three times as much as, um, as other people in Southeast Asia who are buying our gas from us that's being compressed and liquefied and transported. So uh, could you address that, please? You know, gas is a large input for Victorians. Tony Wood, uh, this is your area. <laughs> a, a very, very quick question, answer to that question, because um, it obviously is relevant but not entirely to tonight's discussion. That is that um, you know, the, the gas is now contributing significantly to electricity prices because with the shutdown of Hazelwood and uh, in Victoria and previously Northern in South Australia, gas, gas generators are setting the price more often because the, the coal generators aren't there to do it. And that's what's hap been happening in the last little while. Um, there are some good signs here, by the way, that the, the availability of gas on the East Coast and the cost of that gas is coming down. Now, it won't come, I don't think it'll come down to where it used to be, but it will be certainly less than it has been. I think mo many of the comparisons you, you referred to are actually not valid comparisons. They, 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 they don't compare, they compare spot prices with contract prices, they compare delivered prices with you know, free on board prices, so you need to be very careful with that. But it's still the case that in Australia for the last year or so, the price of gas on the East Coast has been higher than it should have been and higher than what you would call export parity. Now, that has to come back to what the government is trying to do. They've got these uh, potential for imposing export restrictions. My, my expectation is they may not have to do that. But right in the last little while, gas has been a... Um, even for large users of gas, the price of gas has been far more painful, in a sense, than the price of electricity is for small consumers. It's been a very significant problem. It's not going to be fixed permanently, but I think it's going to improve a little. You'll see from our panel that the Melbourne Energy Institute and the Grattan Institute are dedicated to gender diversity. And so for that reason, we're going to go to the questioner in the middle and the back, and then we'll return to you, sir. Thank um, you. Hi. Uh, Sarah McNamara briefly uh, mentioned the role that federal policy and action plays in um, all of this. So this question is directed to Tony Wood. Uh, the Grattan Institute does back pragmatic policy. The prospects of a national energy policy in the short term are lost now that the Finkel's clean energy target has been dropped by the Turnbull government. When will you back the pragmatic policy offering from the Andrews government, which is the Victorian renewable energy target? Look, I think the um, AI haven't given up on the central policy change coming from federal parliament. Now, what they call it, I mean, the big debate may very well be the name rather than what's inside the box, right? Um, that's how important, that's how tricky politics has become in this country. Um, but I think that there are still some prospects of a, of, of a policy emerging from that which would be not perfect by any means, but it might set us in the right direction. In the context of that, even if we see where we are today in the case of um, the Victorian renewable energy target, I have two concerns with it. One is that uh, a single state implementing um, that sort of unilateral policy, given that we are supposed to be committed to a national system, is a bad idea in principle. And secondly, in the absence of action by a federal government, a better approach would be for the Victorian government to work with the other states and developing a consistent national approach. And just ignore Canberra, right? Now, that's what almost happened back in 2006, 7, I think. 
John, you may remember that, where in frustration the Labor states, John Howard government, thought that we should have a national emissions trading scheme. Kevin Rudd was elected and we know what happened next, right? Not very much. So that's why I've been quite critical of the Victorian renewable energy. I understand completely why there's a political response because they don't see any action from Canberra, but I think that particular response is inappropriate and could lead, unless it's done much better than I've seen so far, to potentially the same, a repeat of what we saw in South Australia. Other panellists, further comments on this tension between the politicisation of the issues generally? Well, I think, Sarah, we are where we are in terms of the politics of energy and much as we'd all like to depoliticise it, that, uh, that doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. Uh, I would agree with Tony that uh, we, there is still hope for uh, item 50 of 50 Finkel recommendations federally and I think we'll see that play out um, pretty smartly over the next couple of months and hopefully if something that is almost a CET and called something else if that's important for the coalition party room, as long as that can get bipartisan support then I think industry would be okay with that. But the answer uh, from the states of going it alone if you like does not deliver the kind of confidence to investors that they need to invest in generation and really it muddies the waters and in in increases costs. Uh, so I do agree with Tony that if the states were to have an alternative plan, they would be best to uh, work together federally. And I actually think they asked um, they asked the regulator uh, for advice on whether they could have a uh, sort of a cobbled together national plan um, after the last COAG meeting. But in any event, um, let's just hope that the Finkel recommendations can get across the line in Canberra sooner rather than later. Well, I just... I guess now with my hat on as Chair of Climate Works, because it's not part of this review at all, uh, say that Australia has signed up to the Paris COP agreement, uh, under which, one, we've agreed to get 26 to 28% uh, reduction in emissions by 2030, and B, we've agreed to a two degree maximum uh, temperature rise, which means net zero uh, essentially by 2050. Now, you can't do that and not take very substantial action to decarbonise our electricity system. And uh, I, I think what we're seeing in the USA and in Australia is states uh, saying that we're going to do what we can to help achieve this national and international goal that has been set. And it's very easy just to say, oh, we'll sit back and you know wait for national agreement or bipartisan. If we do that, nothing will happen. And the reality is in the USA, if it wasn't now for California and other states taking action, they'd be going backwards. And I might say in Victoria here, uh, we set up the VRAT when I was a minister here, that actually got renewable energy going at the time the Howard government said no, you know, that, that the fact that this was coming on. And I don't think that uh, the state actions that are being taken are going to lead to uh, companies not investing. Quite the contrary, renewable companies are queuing up to invest. So yes, it would be better if the national government acted, but in the absence of that, I'd rather act on climate change and do something than do nothing at all. And we are conscious of your time and that this is a debate that could continue and also that there's quite a queue of questioners, but I'm told we have one final question 
uh, over this direction. And it's terribly hard to actually see you folks. So um, Thanks very much for the presentations and to Melbourne Energy Institute for organising this event. Um, there is some evidence that um, renewable energy targets and feed-in tariffs are actually exacerbating this problem of price dispersion and creating cost reallocations between particular types of households, in particular from um, solar households to non-solar households. And often um, retailers have to recover costs from households where, the, where there's the least market pressure, so those on standing offers, for example. Um, if we can agree that this is a problem that is currently going on, can you guarantee that the basic service offer won't actually exacerbate these kinds of inequitable cost reallocations? Well, first thing I say is having been a politician, you never guarantee anything. So, <laughs> so, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that because you don't know whether the sun's coming up tomorrow. Having said all of that, uh, look, the principle and purpose of a basic service offer is simply there to provide one offer in the market that's regulated. It's not to replace the others. So the other offers will be there, and whether it's solar or other things, they can be there. And this doesn't change that. So the other problems you've talked about of you know, uh, cost shifting between one group or another, they're there before, they're there in the future. The basic service offers, it doesn't solve that. So. If you're looking at those, you need other solutions. And um, you know, I could have a debate about aspects of, of those things, but in my experience, and it doesn't go just from this, the problem for poorer people and energy is not caused by the fact that people have solar on their roofs. Like, this is a, a red herring that's used. It's, it, there are a lot more basic things about the total cost of energy that we're all paying that are having a much bigger impact on poor people. In the interest of time, uh, we're going to have one final question here, and I'll get you each to answer quickly. Uh, we've had the Finkel review. We've now had the Thwaites report. And we're about to have the ACCC retail report, which Tony mentioned, coming out later this month. Panelists, any predictions on the results of that particular report? And should Victoria wait until that report comes through before taking any decisions about its own energy market? John Thwaites? Well, can I emphasise that it's not my job to tell the Victorian government when or what to do. Like, we've given them the report and it's up to them. And, I mean, someone made a comment that the Victorian government had made a, a um, decision in relation to it. I'm not aware of that. I don't believe they have. As far as I know, they've said that they're going to consider it and there's a process that they're going through. And I know we had a, a day that I think Sarah attended and with a number of others where we spoke about it and there was a consultation about it and I think they're undergoing um, discussions. So that my answer to that is I don't think uh, that the Victorian government, um, you know, I'm sorry, it's not my role to tell them, I, but just in timing, my understanding is the ACCC report comes out in a few weeks. 27. So, you know, I, I doubt whether there'll be a decision before then by the Victorian government. And, and any predictions on the ACCC report or findings? Well, I've got, once again, none at all in, in terms of I've got no knowledge. However, uh, the AMC, which hasn't been at the sort of the radical edge of this discussion, has already come out and said that Victoria is paying higher retail costs than other states. I'd be surprised, given that they found that and we found that, if the ACCC didn't 
have something like that. That's not based on knowledge, but just based on logic. Sarah McNamara, any predictions? Uh, well, unlike John, it is kind of part of my job to try and tell the Victorian government what to do. Um, but <laughs> so, uh, with, with that with that in mind. Uh, Yes, I think the Victorian Government should wait until the interim report of the ACCC is released. Now, it goes to the Treasurer on the 27th. It'll probably be released sometime after that. Do I know what's in it? No, I don't. Uh, to the extent that there are higher prices in the Victorian market, one suspects that volatility in the wholesale market in Victoria may be a pretty significant input into that. But the difference with the ACCC report and with the greatest of respect to both the Grattan Institute and the Thwaites panel in relation to their work, the ACCC has been able to compel from retailers 10 years' worth of uh, intricate data uh, in relation to um, how they are pricing their energy services. And that data, those data sets have not been made available to either the Grattan Institute or the Thwaites panel in their work. So I think we may see uh, some really interesting results out of the ACCC and the Victorian government would be, in my humble opinion, very well advised to um, have a look at those and, and enjoy the benefit of that, that data that we're all looking forward to receiving. Tony Wood, any further predictions? Um, well, firstly, I think that the, um, uh, this, the work that's been done by the ACCC should not be a one-off. Um, no matter what happens out of this, it should be... Uh, I'm not saying it should be done every couple of weeks, by the way. <laughs> but, I mean, it's not unusual in other sectors that are controversial in terms of pricing for the ACCC to collect data. It's a bit more difficult in some areas because you don't have pump prices like you do for, for petrol, right? Um, but I think it's, 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 it's essential because otherwise you end up with this very difficult discussion where we, you know, we don't really have the data to have the proper debate that we've been talking about, right? Now, my suspicion is that what we'll find is a bit of both, like most things, right? Well, what we'll find is that the margins are unusually high in Victoria retail and compared to what retailers provide. Some of those trends that John talked about are difficult to explain. I think because of the, the whole, I don't think the wholesale issue seems to explain all of that. Um, but I'm not, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the margins, instead of being 15, 16%, were 9 or 10%. Now, that's still higher than I would think is going to be justified. I also suspect the ACCC will find that there are other issues within the energy market about which they're concerned, such as the vertical integration and the concentration of power in the, in the, in the wholesale market and the... You know, there are people who are, some of you may know, who are quite concerned about vertical integration and whether that's uh, an, an, an anti-competitive in itself. So there'll be important issues to emerge from that. Um, I think practically and, and, and in principle, it would make sense for the Victorian government to wait. Now, the trick here might be that what we see is only a preliminary report from the ACCC with indicative numbers which, you know, and doesn't actually cut through to the very point where there's a, a degree of disagreement here tonight. So in that case, um, that will be more difficult to do. Our recommendation is to absolutely get on and do these other things and use the threat, if nothing else, of the basic service offer for the industry to get its act together and prove that it's not necessary. Wouldn't that be a good outcome? <laughs> I'm not so optimistic about that. Uh, we'd love to end on notes of optimism, but Tony didn't allow us to do that tonight. But I will ask you to just join a little me bit in, pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, join me in thanking our panelists tonight: Professor John Thwaites, Sarah McNamara, Tony Wood. 
And we would like to thank you all for coming on behalf of the Grattan Institute, the Melbourne Energy Institute, and our wonderful hosts, the State Library of Victoria. Thank you for your time, for your enthusiasm, for your energy. Wishing you all a lovely spring evening with warm homes and cheap prices on energy bills. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.